This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Time Magazine, which has announced their person of the year for 2017, and oh my goodness, it's not Donald Trump. Despite, oh no, he turned it down, that's right. Uh, uh, Donald Trump, uh, not the person of the year. Uh, It is the people who broke the silence when it comes to sexual assault. How ironic is that? Uh, The hashtag MeToo campaign and everyone from professors to engineers uh, to bigger name celebrities like Taylor Swift uh, are all part of this. Uh, And the right decision? Uh, Interesting. Did you see it coming? Let's bring in Glenn Selig. He is the president and CEO of Selig Multimedia, a strategic in chief at the public uh, publicity agency and is with us now. Glenn, thanks for taking the time to join us. Much appreciated. Surprised about this uh, person of the year. I, I think it was a brilliant choice. I certainly didn't see it coming. Uh, it certainly covers a lot of what's going on in the United States and Canada as well. Um, there is so much talk about uh, women coming forward and a, and a tidal wave of change that's taking place in so many industries. So it seems to me it would be a brilliant choice. Uh, surprised it is not an individual. Um a bit. I mean, I don't think it's unheard of that they, they sometimes have more than one person. But, mm-hmm. you know, given what's going on in the avalanche of uh, change that's taking place, I think it was a really smart move. And then you uh, talked about the juxtaposition of, of uh, what the president said and where he, uh, President Trump, where he turned down, supposedly turned down the, the offer to be considered as a finalist. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a very interesting choice. Uh, do you think there's much, or do you think there's any truth to that story that he was approached on this? Mm-hmm. Um, probably not, probably not. But you know, in in America, you get used to the idea that uh, you know there's a little bit of a hyperbole that takes place. I think that's what he's called it in his book, and he's referred to it in this in the past. Uh, and of course, Time Magazine came out about a week ago and said that that uh, simply wasn't the case. Have we have we reached a tipping point here, Glenn? Is is this a changing of the tide? Uh, these stories have been in in the news for a while. Is it different this time? It seems to me different. It seems to be very different this time. And and, and the media is playing a very large role in giving the fuel to the change. So, um, you know, what, what's taking place with the, the Time magazine making that announcement today? Right now in the United States, Al Franken, the, the former actor who's a U.S. senator here, uh, there are now seven or eight different senators, most of them women, one man coming forward, asking him to resign after allegations against him. So there seems to be a lot of pressure. And as we know, um, social media certainly um, makes that possible, but good old fashioned media uh, really is what affects change, and that's what continually seems to be take going forward here. How will we process this moving forward? Obviously, uh, it seems that uh, the world has had an epiphany here, at least our part of the world, has had an epiphany here and, and realizes uh, something that needs to be changed. That being said, the spectrum of assault is massive. It's from somebody saying something to somebody, well... Uh, posing for a picture, all the way down, all, all the way up to uh, sexual assault and abuse in, in, its, in its highest regard. How do we deal with this spectrum of assault? How do we, how do we keep it all in perspective? Or is, is assault assault and that's it? It's all treated the same way. 
Well, I think there is a danger of lumping everything into the same category. And I think you've uh, historically you see issues that everything all gets lumped into the same thing. It is important, I think, uh, for people to realize that there is a difference between uh, some of the accusations and there are degrees of bad. And there are sometimes shades of gray and then there's clearly right and wrong. And I think in a case like this, where there seems to be an avalanche of stories and another person either being fired or resigning every single day, um, it's very easy to lump everybody into the same category. And also, um, it's very dangerous for the individuals accused because they're all painted with the same brush. And uh, people will think that they did the same thing than somebody else who did something who seems to be you know, far worse. And most people would consider it far worse. But sadly, a lot of people don't pay attention to those details. They just hear a bunch of names and a bunch of accusations, and they think everybody is uh, the same degree of bad. Um, I suspect that as uh, all of this unfolds, there we will start uh, paring down and talking about the, the differences and degrees of bad and also some of the root causes of something that's been taking place and uh, permeating our society for so long, why it's coming out now, and what we can do about it moving forward. Why do you think it is coming out now? We've discussed this before. I mean, it certainly has showed no signs of slowing down at this point. Well, you know, from a PR perspective, I mean, it's another shoe that drops every single day that yeah. sort of, you know, if this were a fire every day, there's another piece of wood that's being thrown into the fire. So there are new chapters and new ways to cover the story. So from a news story, there's always something new to cover, whether it's a different industry or another person or Time Magazine today talking about their person of the year. And now senators calling on another senator to resign. You've got in this country right now, we've got um, somebody who's running for the U.S. Senate who's been accused of some terrible atrocities who the president is supporting. So these are very, very crazy times. I don't think you could, um, you know, if a writer brought a script to Hollywood and said, write this, they would probably say, oh, forget it. Nobody would ever believe it. Mm. And we're living it right now. Mm. You wonder you wonder how long it is before we see such things, too. Uh, how does this change pop culture moving forward? Are we now viewing life through a different lens? How will we approach things th- of, that are sexual in nature that come from Hollywood? Is it a different game now? It is a different game, but, you know, the, 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 the comedy people will come forward, and I think, you know, just like we've um, gone through some difficult times in the past and some controversial things, uh, we will, as a society, get through it. Um, we will figure out a way to get through it, and at some point, people will be able to look at it from, you know, in a hindsight perspective. It's, it's, it, you can't look into a rearview lens, you know, rearview mirror until it's, you know, we've, we've gone past it, and right now we're in it. You know, even terrible atrocities like, uh, you know, the bombing of the World Trade Center. At some point, you start talking about it, and you can talk about it because you're looking at it from a, in the rearview mirror. So once we figure out exactly how to process it and and once we have policies and procedures and people feel safe in the workplace, particularly women, where they can come to work and know they're not going to be assaulted, I think we'll be able to talk about how far we've come, similar to maybe the civil rights movement or something like that. Uh, one, one listener writes, assault is all the same at all levels. Cash grab for lawyers. Will, will, what, we be- will, will what culture benefits from outweigh what the uh, litigation will, will benefit? Well, I, 
I don't know. I think we're it. That's to be seen. The, the the whole litigation aspect of this, and where this goes to court, and what is successful and what not. I mean, there are lots of uh, legal issues that need to be worked out. Some of these cases go so far back that the um, you know they just can't be taken to court anymore, and uh, they won't be litigated. And these stories are going to be hanging out there, and people will wonder, you know, who's telling the truth. But there will be some recent ones that will get to court, and I think one that people will certainly be watching is the accusation against uh, the President of the United States here in the U.S., and we'll have to see where that one goes. I think there'll be a lot of attention on that one, particularly because of everything we're talking about here. We've seen uh, lots in entertainment and lots in the political world. What about private industry, or does this have a tendency to be settled uh, behind closed doors? How will this change HR departments? That's a very good question. And in fact, just over the weekend, I was talking to a friend of mine who was saying that she may have to leave her job because of something similar that's going on right now in the news. So while it's taking place there, the change is apparently, at least anecdotally from her story, is coming a lot slower. I mean, what what private industry doesn't have that entertainment and politics does have is a lot of media attention and a lot of public scrutiny. There's too much right now that's taking place in the privacy of, a, of an office space where it isn't getting the attention and companies apparently feeling like they could still um, get away with it and not do anything about it. It's going to take some warrior in one of those companies to come forward, make it public, show how private industry needs to be held accountable too, and then it'll stop happening there as well. So it's you think a little bit more difficult. You think yeah. there's going to have to be a scenario in the private sector, some boardroom office where this gets the same sort of legs that it has in the entertainment and political world. I'm I'm my speculation is it's going to take an example being made out of a private company, just like people would say it's happening in entertainment, but I don't know that it's happening in politics or it's never going to go away in politics. So we went from entertainment to politics. Once it started, once we have an example of a uh, private sector company, then I think the others will say, well, we can't take a chance that that could be us. We better get our act together. Uh, Are you still waiting for another story to drop tomorrow? (laughs) I think based on how it's going, there doesn't seem to be uh, a stop. I mean, there are so many layers. I think we're just at the beginning of peeling the onion, uh, particularly in Washington and uh, what's going on in in the Capitol. We still don't know, you know, how many uh, of our lawmakers there were payouts for. There's a secret slush fund that was being paid out. We don't know who that is. You know, we don't know how many lawmakers. We don't know if it's Democrat, Republican, or an equal number of both. So many questions still need to be answered. And as long as there are questions out there, I'm expecting more stories to come out. Glenn Selig has been with us, president and CEO of Selig Multimedia Publicity Agency. Uh, Glenn, thank you so much for the time and insight as usual. Much appreciated. You bet, Scott. Thank you. Uh, Let's move on and uh, bring in Brenda Tracy, survivor of rape, advocate and activist, and has done many, uh, lots of work with many people in this field, uh, trying to move the discussion forward. She's with us now. Brenda, thanks for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. So, Brenda, the thought that uh, this has made uh, Times Person of the Year, your thoughts, how has this changed the discussion? Oh, well, I mean, it's amazing. (laughs) I think, um, you know, as a survivor, and I think there's many, many of us all over the country who are just kind of reveling in this moment, um, because whoever thought that this would, you know, come to this, there's been so many, you know, days where you think no one really cares, 
and will this ever change? And, you know, it's happening. Shift is happening. Why do you think that's happening now? Why now? I think it's because survivors are just fed up. <laughs> I think that um, it's just come to a point where, you know, finally voices are, people are just speaking up. And, you know, it started with survivors speaking up and, you know, enduring backlash from it. Like, it wasn't always, you know, now we're, it's kind of, you know, it seems more okay right now to speak up and say something, but it's not always been that way. And it's not that it's that way all the time now either. Um, but we're, we're starting to see this movement where it's, it's okay. And I think it's because survivors are just tired of being silenced. I think we're tired of being ashamed. I think we're tired of dealing with something that's not our fault um, and carrying that burden. You know, I talk a lot about how, you know, I carried the burden of the four men who raped me for 16 years and that silence and shame. And I just got fed up. And it's not my shame to carry anymore. It's theirs. And I think we're seeing a lot of people give back that shame and silence to, to the people it belongs to. And that's the perpetrator. How did you get to that point where you could let it go like You know, that? for me... Yeah, you know, for me, I came forward about three years ago, um, and there wasn't this movement really going on, right? It's kind of at the beginning, very, very beginning stages. And um, I was scared, but at the same time, I just, I desperately wanted something different in my life. The the shame, the silence, the um, horror of what had happened to me, the, the consequences of that type of trauma were just um, so overwhelming. I was you know, dying a slow death inside, and I wanted something different in my life. And so I decided to uh, come forward and use my voice um, kind of in a selfish act, not necessarily to help anyone else, but just to help myself. And um, it worked. <laughs> it did help me. Um, and in me coming forward and using my voice, I helped another person to come forward and use their voice, and that person helps someone, and that person helps someone. And now we get to this Me Too movement where that's really all it is, is one person being brave enough to use their voice, which gives permission and strength and helps another person be courageous to do the same thing. And then you, you get this amazing movement that we have today. Do you think society was aware that this problem was as deep as it is? Um, I think on some level we've all, we all know, but I don't know that we consciously recognized it or were willing to really face it and talk about it because, you know, we've been covering this up for a long time, right? Mm -hmm. Like all of these industries, you, you hear it like in Hollywood and people saying like, yeah, I knew, and I didn't say anything. There's been a lot of people across this country who have been standing by saying nothing and doing nothing. Um, so on some level, we've all known. We just haven't been discussing it with each other and talking about it. And now it's all being exposed. Uh, talk about the spectrum of abuse and, and how we have to have this discussion moving forward. Um, when, when there's physical abuse involved, there's criminality involved, therefore it seems to be more recognizable uh, and, 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 and such and identifiable. Verbal, not so much. Uh, we're hearing a situation of an MP posing for a picture, makes a comment about a, a threesome. Explain to us, even from, though it's not certainly the experience that you experienced, the traumatic experience that you experienced, how are those similar? Well, it all, it all contributes to a culture, is, is the issue. Um, and it all contributes to a culture of, you know, objectifying... Uh, women especially, 
Um, and verbal abuse can be as harmful as anything else, right? I mean, if you think about, we know we talk about this locker room talk and how words don't matter, but words matter, right? Like words start wars. Words begin relationships. They end relationships. Um, how many young girls have an eating disorder because somebody said you're fat, right? Words, words are little containers of power and they, they can take authority over someone's life for, for good or for bad. So it's not just you know, being hit or physically struck. I, I would say that there's probably things in my own life, you know, I was a victim of domestic violence, but um, there's probably words and things people said to me that hurt me more and traumatized me more than a bruise that I could watch heal and go away. So we have to think about all of these things and how every single part of that is a piece of this puzzle of trauma and contributing to a larger culture. It's not just one thing. It's many things combined that create this huge trauma. Brenda Tracy has been with us, rape survivor, advocate, activist. Uh, Thank you so much, Brenda, for sharing your story. Uh, Much appreciated. Yeah, thank you for having me on today. I appreciate you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Russians and cheating, really? I've never heard of that. Uh, It looks like it has finally come to a head. Uh, The IOC has uh, decided as of yesterday that uh, Team Russia cannot compete in the 28 Olympics, uh, 2018 Olympics, uh, but will allow clean Russian athletes to compete under strict conditions for testing and, of course, a neutral banner, which means no flag and no national anthem. To talk more about all of this, Scott Radley is with us, host of the Blue Jay, or host of the Scott Radley Show. I'm writing Blue Jays as I'm saying that because I also want to get his take on all of that story. Uh, host of the Scott Radley Show and Blue Jay fan, columnist for your Hamilton Spectator too. Scott Radley, are you there? How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Is this now from your intro? Is this supposed to be a stress relief for me now? Yes. Well, to we, call in and talk to you, it's we relieve my stress. That's great. Well, we called you, so I don't know if it works the same way that way. <laughs> I think you have to call us. You have we'll, to show. You have to show the initiative. We'll try. Because otherwise, you know, you're just selling something that you know I want to hear. I want to hear it coming from your heart, Scott. Then I know that the stress has been released. All right. I, I look forward to it. All right. Um, uh, first of all, uh, has there been clarification on whether these clean athletes will participate? At first, it was thought that, of course, there's no way Vladimir Putin would let this happen without the flag and the national anthem and everything that goes with it. Are those clean athletes now allowed to participate as far as Putin is concerned? Last I heard, and, you know, things can change, but last I heard, he's not going to demand a full boycott on this. And I think there is a pretty easy explanation for why that is because you're right you would think that probably under these circumstances you would say ioc is not going to let russia be there well here's back at you ioc you would think that would have been the typical reaction so is this admission of guilt no 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 uh you may have noticed that in the past number of weeks there was a story that alex ovechkin the washington capitals player superstar in the nhl said he was on Team Putin, and he was supporting Putin, and uh, there have been other NHL Russian players who have taken the same tack. Vladimir Putin announced in the last few days that he is going to be seeking another term. Now, how fair the elections are, I don't know, but he's going to be seeking another term in Russia. Mm -hmm. He has right now, for whatever reason, seemingly pretty widespread support of the athletic community in that country 
who are huge celebrities and huge stars and hugely impactful and influential people in that nation, it seems. So I'm thinking if I'm Vladimir Putin and I'm going to be seeking re-election, and I want all these athletes like Alex Ovechkin to come out and tell me, tell the, tell the rest of the people, vote for Putin, he's a great guy. The way you don't do that is to tell these people who have been training for four years, by the way, you're not going to the Olympics. Mm. He allows them to now continue to pursue their dream and try and win a medal. He doesn't upset the apple cart too much. I'm, that's the two and two that I'm putting together here. And it's, but it's, it's a little more complicated, and I'll tell you why, Scott, because you, you said it absolutely right. From everything that I've been understanding and reading, essentially the IOC has said no Russia officially, but Russian athletes can come, provided they are clean. Mm-hmm. Here's the tricky part. Because they've been banned as a result of state-sponsored doping, and because then we don't really know who the clean athletes are. Even like the people who, are, who have passed the test, they might be clean, but if you've got the state who is covering up for other people, how do we know? Well, the, I and, and from what I understand, it's going to be independent testing that's done uh, through, now, through the IOC. Now, now. That's the only way that they, the clean athletes, will, clean athletes will be allowed in. And does that create uh, further controversy? What happens if they say, okay, uh, only the clean athletes get to go under the uh, Team Olympic banner, here we go, and then they line them up to start testing and they start dropping like flies? Well, I don't. Well, maybe I'm wrong. I don't think they would be that dumb, I, uh, and that could be very naive. So, will they lose? Here's the problem with the whole concept, Scott, is that you are saying there are already a bunch of Russian athletes who have already received lengthy bans for their positive test. They are not in the mix to say suddenly, "Oh, those are gone now. You can start retesting, and as long as you're clean between now and Pyeongchang, you're fine to go." Those bans stand. Yeah, but there's a whole lot of other others who passed the tests that may have been clean, but may have been dirty, but just got it covered up for them, right. who probably should be banned. But won't that come out, when so they, won't that come out in the uh, no, neutral screening? No. no, because they will have, surely they won't be doping now that they know that they have to yeah. pass these tests between now and then. But look, we're in December. The Olympics are in February. Mm-hmm. Right? So you could have, literally, you could have probably had close to three years of being on a program right reaps the benefit prior to of the that olympics, and now yeah. you say okay well now yeah. i'm not going to do it and i'm clean i'm good to go right so as long as you stop taking it prior to the olympics you're fine is that the case keep one thing in mind yeah keep one thing in mind about this the reason we all remember the ben johnson story sadly the ben johnson story still haunts canadians unfortunately mm-hmm. ben johnson as the story went only got caught in seoul because he'd had an injury shortly before and as a result of that he took some stuff, so the story goes, too close to competition. Right. Had Ben Johnson never had that, I think it was a hamstring injury, had he never had that and never then taken that extra stuff, Ben Johnson would probably still be considered in Canada one of our greatest sporting heroes. And so he reaped the benefits of his doping program. He weaned himself off in clean enough, in enough time, generally, for most of the times yeah. he raced, to not get caught. So who who know this is the problem. I'm not throwing all Russian athletes under the bus. There may be many 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 who are completely clean and have performed and played absolutely fairly, but because of the system that was in place, there is absolutely no way to know. 
uh, who they are. So obviously, uh, state sponsored from the top down, holes in walls, and man, it's unbelievable. It's like out of a Get Smart movie. The technology they were using yeah. here. Um, can Russia even with the code of silence? Exactly. That's the only thing that's missing here. Uh, can Russia deny this? You, you know, you talked about uh, Putin's uh, reaction to it. Most thought he would just pull out, as you mentioned, election the month after the games uh, in 2018. Uh, so obviously, there's political ramifications here. Uh, that being said, though, can Russia deny this? At what point do they stray from denial to? Uh, condemning those that were involved. I don't. I don't. Well, can, can, like, how long? Do. How long can you stand up and say, you know what, the rest of the world is wrong and we're right, and you guys and you Russian people are going to believe us? I mean, let's be honest. It ain't North Korea. There are a lot of countries in a lot of places in the world that have had great success with their own people, saying the rest of the world is wrong and we are right, and this is a witch hunt against us and. Yeah, you know, but come on, how long, how long can they keep selling this crap? I mean, I think everybody, it's got to the point now where this has happened simply because it's damaging the IOC brand. It, it's got to the point where now it's become, in, you know, it's got to do with money. It's got to do with monetizing this event. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at what point, you know, you can say all you want, Russia, but you're not coming to our party because, y- y- you know, you lack credibility. I mean, at what point do they have to, you know, can they de- can they deny this forever? I mean, really? Sure. Sure they could. But I think where we're going to start getting some really interesting discussion going is I'm assuming that a whole bunch of Russians Russian athletes are going to apply for this exemption and are still going to want to go to Pyeongchang. They've trained for three, three and a half years. Who's, I mean, they're not all going to say, oh, forget it then. So, but when you go there, if these strict testings are on, they may, some may still have the benefit of three years or whatever of, of passing these tests, but if they have doping systems in place that can catch what they have been taking, and that's another question altogether because the cheaters are always ahead of the police, but If Russia doesn't do very well at these Olympics, and it won't be under the banner of Russia, but if Russian athletes don't do well, there's going to be a lot of people saying, hmm. See? See? Yeah. See? And that's going to be an interesting discussion. Now, what happens, and I don't know the answer to this one, what happens if many, many Russian athletes go to the Olympics and clean up? Then what happens? Then you've only got two options, either... People are going to say, well, they're doping with something that the police still can't figure out and don't know what it is, and they're still cheating, but we don't know how to catch them. Or that's when you're going to have someone like Putin and the rest of the Russians saying, see, we had extensive uh, drug testing, and we still did very well. This was not Yeah, but you, you can easily use that argument on what's been done in the last three years. So how does this change the testing system for the IOC moving forward? Will they be more involved in a, um, uh, uh, an IOC system that every country must participate in, even going up through the, uh, the lead-up to the Games? How does this change the testing system moving forward? The... Well, I would encourage people, to answer your question, I would encourage people, and I said this on my show last night, and I'm going to say it again tonight, because uh, we're talking about this tonight as well. I would encourage people, if they have Netflix at home, to go watch the movie Icarus. I-C-A-R-U-S, Icarus. And it is a documentary, but it pretty clearly, if you commit an hour, an hour and a half probably to it, you will understand why Russia is not being allowed to go to the Olympics. Yeah. It lays it out. So and will also, this change? Will say, this the get smart thing? 
Will this it change? lays out how they did this. Yeah. And that's where the changes are going to come. Because yeah. watching this movie, you're going to see, this was not, Scott, this was not a, a case where you had a few, by the sounds of it, by what's laid out here, a few rogue people doing yeah. sneaky little things. This was an unbelievably sophisticated, well-thought-out KGB So how can Russia continually deny that when the IOC goes, look, they're passing samples through holes in the wall. At what point can Russia go, oh, gee, sorry, you caught us. We'll try to do better next time. I mean, you know, if you keep denying this, they will be continually expelled for the games. This isn't, now that this precedence has been, this precedent has been set, they're not, the IOC is not going to move backwards on it. So the same thing's going to happen in the next four years or two years when they try to compete for the next games. So either they have to admit it and clean it up or they're not involved because they're not, the IOC is so. not going to go back on this now. No, I think the first step, honestly, I don't know how you, I, to answer your question with the Russian thing, look, go back to uh, what year was the Bill Clinton-Monica Lewinsky thing? That turned out to be true, but it was denied, 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 and eventually a lot of people just said, yeah, he's, I don't believe that he did it, and it turned out to be completely true. But if you deny long enough, you're going to convince some people that you're telling the truth. I don't know how that works, but it does. But the, the other part is, keep in mind, the, this story, where this came from, was from Sochi. This was an Olympics in Russia with doping yeah. by Russians. Yeah. I think the one change you're going to see right off the bat is, I would expect the IOC and WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, will demand that in any future Olympics, yeah. the host country have nothing at all to do with the construction, or security, it's in, or it's entirely of independent. Of the doping yeah. facility. Yeah. We're not going to let the locals have any <laughs> possible access to this. This is going to be an entirely yeah. independent. Right to the point where it wouldn't surprise me if WADA and the IOC said, you are going to hand us the money to build this facility as part of your cost of putting mm. the Olympics together, yeah. but we are going to hire the construction workers. We're going to do everything. You will have no ability to have any impact on that particular facility. That may be one of the steps we're going to see coming here to make sure that nobody finds loopholes or finds ways. And you know what the worst part about that is, Scott? Even if you do that, somebody will find a way. Yeah. Somebody will find a way. There's always a way. If you want to cheat hard enough, if you want to cheat badly enough, there's always a way. That being said, will people still be eager to do that consciously, knowing what it has cost Russia? And this will, like, you know, think about a team being denied uh, the ability to play under its own name. Think of this was the United States. I mean, th this, is, this is big money. Th this has to set an example. This has to set a precedence. I always wonder whether this would ever be the case with the United States. And the reason I ask that is not because they have special dispensation to cheat, although some people would say they have in the past. The money from the American broadcasters is so immense for the Olympics that it carries a lot of the games. And if you were to dump the Americans out of the Olympics, you're not just hurting the Americans you're really hurting yourself. Well, and I think and that's, that's what's happened here is, you know, this isn't about, you know, why haven't they done this in the past? This is not about catching cheaters. This is about cheating has got to the point where it is so obvious to the layman 
who's just following this as a fan, that it's damaged the IOC brand. It's damaged the Olympic brand. We all remember that, you know, people would line up to host the Olympics. This The line forms mm-hmm. to the right. Spend thousands of dollars trying to even, you know, make a bid. That's not happening anymore. This brand has lost its luster in the last couple of years. And I think they finally realize that. And that's what's, it, what's instituting change here. And at the end of the day, if people don't trust the brand, it might as well be WWE. Well, there's two issues at play here. The first part is, you're right that the brand has been damaged, but a lot of the reason countries aren't lining up is because after Sochi, which Putin spent $50 billion, I think, to build an entire city for the Olympics, which is now largely sitting vacant, after Beijing, and we don't know how much money the communist government there spent to do those Olympics, after Brazil after Rio, which pretty much bankrupted an already bankrupt country, there's a lot of places that are saying, yeah, you know what, we'd love to have a game, but not at the cost of everything else. So that's the first part. The second part, though... And then you link the is, corruption with that. Too much money yeah. and it's corrupt. No way. People yeah, are out, and, man. But Ben Johnson severely, to bring him up again, severely damaged the Olympic brand. The difference is, when Ben Johnson got caught, and Charlie Francis, his coach, and all the other guys who were in that camp... There was no allegation that Canada was behind the doping. It was a rogue group of athletes and coaches that were doing this. Now you've got something where an entire country's infrastructure, according to the IOC and WADA and all these other investigations, an entire country's infrastructure was making sure their athletes win. That makes it an awful lot easier to ban a country when it's not the athletes who are necessarily the only ones you're targeting here. It's the people... Who are behind everything? Uh, so uh, it looks like Putin will let them uh, compete the clean athletes under the neutral banner. Considering the bromance between Trump and Putin, do you think, uh, much like Trump felt sorry for Michael Flynn, who of course was charged with lying to the FBI, do you think he's going to feel sorry for Team Russia and invite them to participate under the Team USA banner? Why not? No. No, no. You know, uh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to insult you your sport. No, like, I didn't mean to insult your sport intelligence with that. It was no, a joke. No, no, But no, come no, on. It, I think that's what would make this story even nice. Nicer is this. All of a sudden, Trump goes, you know what? That's not fair. They're, it's right. I mean, they're wrong. They did the wrong thing, but it's not fair. So, you know what? Here, put on this jersey and come compete with us. I can see it happening. No, no. It's uh, it, look. The one thing that uh, that I do recall from Donald Trump's campaign was "Make America Great Again." What yeah. would be better than with exactly. all those sports that Russia's not going to win in now that the Americans win medals? Yeah, but if they're all wearing, uh, if everybody's on the same team now, we're best friends with Russia now. Come on, you're making it sound like they're the enemy. Uh, what about? Sorry, go ahead. Uh, I, I can't let you go. We've only got about a minute left or so. Uh, sure. Your thoughts? Will the Blue Jays be sold? What's this story about? Sounds like it, doesn't it? That, well, at least they're putting them up for sale. And it's not as simple with the Blue Jays. And I've got to hurry here because it's not as simple as just selling a team because they also have the stadium. But the stadium is they own the stadium, but it's not on their land. Hmm. The, sta- the dome doesn't sit on Blue Jays' land. So there's a lot of they, they have all the TV rights through Rogers, which they own for Sportsnet. Yep. But they, there are so many. This is not the simple case of saying, you know, Scott, you have a – whatever. I just want to sell it to you. This has got many, many tentacles tangled in and tied up. I'm, if they want to sell it, I'm sure, that, and they have to find someone who's willing to spend probably a billion or 
who knows, a billion and a half dollars to buy this team. I'm, I don't think there's that many people around who have that kind of dough. I'm sure they'll find someone. And the next question becomes, as I let you go, is the person going to be a terrific owner who says, I want to spend money and I want to bring in stars and I want this team to be great, or is it going to be the next Harold Ballard mm. who says, I just, you know what, this is just a money-making operation for me. We're going to cut every corner. We're going to cut every excess bit of fat. I don't care how many people we get in there. As long as I can get my TV dough, who cares? And so that's, for Blue Jays fans, that's the one thing that you've got to be concerned about is the owner has an awful lot to do with how that team is going forward and if you want to watch a winning team you better hope if they do sell it that it goes to a guy who wants to win scott radley has been with us host of the scott radley show right here every weeknight and of course sports columnist for your hamilton spectator scott thanks for the time and insight as always much appreciated thanks scott you're listening to the scott thompson show weekdays from noon to three on am 900 chml big anniversary in Canada today, and some may or may not uh, be aware of this. A hundred years ago today, the Halifax explosion occurred when two ships, one loaded with explosives, collided, uh, killing nearly 2,000 people. To talk more about all of this, Anthony Wilson-Smith is with us, President and CEO of Historica Canada, and is on the line with us now. Hi, Anthony. Thanks for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate it. Hi, my pleasure, except, of course, sad subject. Uh, tell us what Historica Canada is. Well, we're the, uh, well, we're the, I guess what people might know us for best is we do the Heritage Minutes. And in fact, we have a Heritage Minute that, that concerns the Halifax explosion. We also do the Canadian Encyclopedia. We talk about important things in Canadian history, a lot of historical programs. And we put veterans in schools every year to talk about their contributions in, you know, in conflict, in wars, to give people a first-hand idea of things. So we promote Canada and its history. Are more people interested in that now than in the past? We always hear we know so much about everybody's, we know none of, none of our own history. You know what's great is the, the, the most engaged generation, by our at least by the programs we run, are younger Canadians who are a lot more... You know, 20-somethings, uh, late teens, early 30s, who are a lot more emotionally uh, engaged and proud in declaring that than I would tell you I was in my, at the same age, which was not yesterday. It's, uh, it's a real sea change, and it's great to see. All right, take us through this, Anthony. Uh, take us back 100 years ago, and what happened? An almost unimaginable explosion. So um, Halifax in late wartime, 1917, uh, big shipping uh, point of departure for Europe to send supplies over. 50,000 residents of Halifax, and that number swelled by probably tens of thousands of troops and uh, related people waiting to ship out. And um, on a morning, a Norwegian ship and uh, a French ship carrying, um, you know, carrying munitions are heading on their way out of, the har- out of the harbor. Fairly normal occurrence, except for a variety of complex reasons. They cross paths, and neither is in quite the direction they should be. Norwegian ship hits the French ship, uh, pierces it. It starts to burn and that causes the attention. It does that for about 20 minutes, and that causes everybody standing on shore, of course, to look and say, oh, my gosh, look at what's happening out there. Only a few people understand that this thing is just chock full of TNT and the most powerful explosives of that time. After 20 minutes, it just erupts. It goes off with a boom that eclipses the uh, force that eclipses the speed of sound. Uh, strongest explosion ever until the time of the atomic bomb. Hmm. More than 2,000 dead, uh, more than 9,000 wounded, including many of those blinded. A quarter of those are children. And, um, and you know, for a long time, so many people were just obliterated that they couldn't tell how many they'd lost. 
Uh, talk a little bit about that uh, fire after the collision. And it, and it was a period of time before uh, the explosion, after the two ships collided and, and the fire started. Uh, I'm getting the impression that the fire burning in the harbour, uh, the ship in the harbour, drew people to that area to watch. People came closer to see this, did they That's not? right. Uh, two absolutely catastrophic things happened in that sense. One is that uh, so there's a fire, so of course people are curious, and rather than move away, they start to gather. They have no idea of the danger, and that era, of course, there's really no way to warn them in general. The other thing is, as the ship's wounded, and of course no longer propelling itself, it starts to drift with the tide, and it drifts much closer to shore. And about the only people who understand the, you know, the, the, the problem that uh, this thing is just a disaster waiting to happen are the crew on board the French munition ship who know precisely what's on board. So they, you know, they start yelling, they hop out, they start heading off in the other direction to get away from it, but that's not nearly enough to tip people off. So was there any warning whatsoever before this? Well, some of your listeners will have seen our minute where we talk about a train conductor named Vincent Coleman who was involved in, uh, who was aware of what was being shipped out by nature of his job, who had some idea of supplies, and who realized when he heard of this that this was just a, a pending catastrophe. And he, uh, he actually morse-coded out, he sent out a warning to trains coming in to stop them and to alert other people. And that was the first warning about three minutes before uh, the explosion occurred that anybody had of this. And he was ultimately, he quite deliberately gave his life to warn others in there. But no, in general, people didn't know. Uh, why, why so many blinded? Talk about that aspect of this. It was the sheer force. So, uh, you know, to give you an idea within that context, uh, windows were smashed by the force of the explosion in Truro, which is 100 kilometers away. There were some fishing crews off the coast of Massachusetts. Can't tell you how far, but we're into the hundreds of kilometers now who said they felt and heard the explosion when it heard again. It eclipsed the speed of sound. So the sheer force of it um, blew, blew houses down blew out, for example, into glass, uh, creating jagged you know, pieces of glass that were just weapons, so that was a cause of it, things following otherwise. This ultimately, as a side note, led to the creation of the Canadian National Institute for the Blind because of the sheer volume of wow. people blinded within it. Um, what, what were the minutes, hours like after the explosion? considering its magnitude. Sheer, absolute uh, horror, you know, shock, of course, devastation. So the town, um, you know, the town was effectively leveled. There was one whole 2.4, in, in the area of Richmond, there was a 2.4 kilometer square stretch where just nothing was left. It was just ground. Um, people were picked up and thrown. There's a description from a guy who actually remarkably you know, survived, a guy named Charles Myers, who was on one of the ships nearby, who said, he was picked up and dropped nearly a kilometer from the ship, said I was wet when I came down. I had no clothes on when I came to except my boots. There was a little girl near me. I asked where we were. She said she had no idea. She didn't know where she'd been blown from. Wow. Um, and even a mild tsunami in this harbor as a result of this? Yeah, it just uh, it sent the waves up into, you know, up with tremendous force. Again, you know, the force of the wind, so... To go back to Miles' terms, the old Miles, you know, when the, when the blast slowed after several seconds, it slowed to 756 miles a minute. So that's over a thousand, uh, a second, a second, sorry, which is over a thousand, you know, um, kilometers. So, uh, the, you know, the force was just unbelievable attached to it. Again, you'd have to go back to, you'd have to look at uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the A-bomb explosions to find anything to parallel it. 
Uh, and both ships in error here uh, as a result of uh, uh, involving this collision? Well, you know, there's a debate that still goes on to this day about it. Uh, what's clear is that the, uh, the, Northern, uh, the Norwegian ship, the Emo, that ran into the other should not have been where it was. There was an established protocol for it, but a lot of different reasons have been put forward for it. You know, and was the French ship where it should have been in turn? Uh, you know, that's not quite clear. In other words, there was the equivalent, as they say, in air crashes of, you know, of pilot or navigator error that took place in there. And, of course, you know, not a whole lot of people survived from those ships to have an inquest after to, you know, to figure it out. Was it, was it daylight hours at this time? The sun was up at this time, Yeah, was it was it about 9.05, and that's yeah. the reason why the loss was so horrific among children, that, uh, you know, a lot of them were on their way to school, were nearby, were being walked to school. Um, you know, and of course, you know, again, there was no 1917. You're not talking about a lot of traffic, a lot of vehicles that right. can flee the area or general announcements. Not a lot of people have phones. There was really very little public communication or awareness of the, you know, of, of the requirement for that. What happened to the ship that was carrying the explosives and the other one that hit it? Tiny little pieces. Really? Um, yeah, I mean, just uh, huge ships just blown and gone. Uh, they had, uh, you know, the, the Mont Blanc, the one that blew, was carrying something called benzol, which is, which is a really, you know, bad, it's a form of gasoline, so you can just imagine that. Again, they had TNT, they had other weaponry that was prepared. It was supposed to go straight to the troops overseas. So these, these, these ships were heading to the war zone. That's where they were going. Yeah, well, the, uh, the Norwegian ship uh, was not, you know, was not a, a, a battleship. But the other thing was that in that area, making it worse, was you had a lot of the Royal Canadian Navy ships waiting to ship out as well. So they were carrying munitions in turn. In other words, this is just like setting off, you know, the worst string of, uh, well, not firecrackers, but you know how you blow yeah. one and then they all go in order. So one blows and it picks up everything and carries it from beyond there. So, uh, obviously, the collision uh, and then fire roughly 20 minutes later, a horrendous explosion. Is that it, or does the town continue to erupt? Well, the town continued. Of course, some of the areas on the edge that weren't just obliterated completely, you then had, um, you then had fires break out. Again, you had this enormous loss that continued further because glass windows just blew other parts. Pieces of metal came off. Uh, you know, everything just went into and things were well, not... Well, you can imagine if a, ship is, if a ship is shrapnel. I mean, my goodness. Well, that's exactly effectively what happened was all of the buildings yeah. around became shrapnel of themselves rather than being protection places. Although, miraculously, again, in the middle of all this, there were some houses... You know, where everything around was destroyed and through some freak or just some odd bit of shadowing, you know, one would survive and then you'd, you know, and there'd be nothing else for about 40 houses around. Hmm. What about reaction to this explosion? Uh, help came from around. How long before uh, help arrived? Well, they had uh, they started moving within the day, and of course, it came in over the next couple of days. Again, you know, planes were not of any use; they weren't big enough to be able to carry things in. So you were talking about train as close as they could get and vehicles as close as they would. The one advantage was that they were used to; they had a lot of established, um, you know, transportation lines into the city because of its importance as a shipping out center. So it wasn't like they were trying to get to a place in the woods where there was no access. And once they figured out that, you know, once this was done, they could also bring some supplies in and some and medical help by ships from elsewhere too but um, you know there was just first this this sense of being stunned and of chaos and you know the funny thing is that uh, not funny but is that uh, it's only in the last month that the last survivor of this a woman who was 105 years old yeah. and five at the time passed away and she w- therefore was old enough to have a recollection of that day herself man you could just only imagine that uh, how long did the city burn afterwards 
Oh, hours after, in some cases on the outskirts, uh, into days, and of course, you know, you'd have uh, you'd have kind of isolated fires burning and nobody bothering to tend to them because they were just trying to get to the people who were affected through this. And, the, you know, even the survivors themselves, of course, were in no shape to do much other than figure out, try to figure out how to fend for themselves, how to find food, how to find support, and, you know, and the places that would normally supply medical care, the hospitals, were done as well. Yeah, so where was the closest help? Well, again, you had to bring it in by ship, you had to bring it in by train, wherever yeah. you could. Um, you know, there were 1,500 destroyed, buildings that were destroyed, and another 1,200 were damaged. So you had, in addition to all those figures I just gave you, 25,000 people, or in other words, fully half the population of Halifax at that time, had nowhere to live. And what, how, what did they do from a temporary standpoint after that? Even nine, what, like 9,000 injured, how do they tend to that many people? You really just group them all together. You you know supply the best short term, whether you're ripping up clothes to make bandages, um, you know, or or any form of things, or just trying to get families regrouped while you get through and wait for more you know more to happen. What was fortunate in that case at that point was that you did not have um, you know if you'd had any kind of disease issue, and and you know this is only two years before the Spanish flu took root you would have then had conditions for, you know, that would have endangered the lives of those who were left because there would have been no sanitation, no, no proper protection against it. Uh, the, facts, the, the fact that this happened heading into the winter months, h- how does that change the discussion? Well, it makes it that much worse uh, in addition because, you know, uh, Halifax is not, is not the far north, but it's pretty cold. After yeah. all, it's Canada in December. So... Um, you know, it's yeah. It it made it more common. You know, there's a there's a quote here from somebody who was part of it. Just talked about how we have uh, the air blast um, among other things. It crushed internal organs, exploded uh, lungs and eardrums of those closest by. A lot of whom their only mercy was they died instantly. Roofs and ceilings collapsed on their owners. Floors dropped into the basement. Um, you know, families underneath. And and then there was a fireball over a one to four mile area that went out within seconds. And they were talking about even pieces of this ship, including uh, the shaft of its uh, 500k anchor, landing more than three kilometers away. Yeah, it just went upstairs. It was uh, straight up in the sky, a great big fireball. And um, yeah, the anchor was, yeah, that's right, four kilometers. And it's still, they've still, in fact, kept it in place as a reminder of that. So how long did it take for the city to recover? I don't know how you would define recover, but at least get back to some sense of normalcy. Well, I think you've defined it well. I mean, it was, it was obviously, of course, it was years, despite a rush effort. Um, there are a lot of photographs to compare parts of Halifax that were affected with, uh, with today. In some cases, they tried to rebuild as things looked before. In other cases, there was no point. For those of your listeners who have been there and know Citadel Hill, that did provide mm-hmm. some, uh, some protection. So, you know, the force of that great blast, if you happened to have the good fortune to be behind it, then you were probably as, you know, as good as it got. How did this affect the psyche of the city over the years in the recovery mode? Well, I mean, everybody, you know, everybody had a story and everybody had been lost. Uh, you know, almost everybody had lost somebody. So for people who are around for that era, it's not, un- you know, it is not uncommon to be in Halifax now and run into people who have their stories of the explosion, not mm-hmm. firsthand anymore, of course, right. but uh, who's, who've had it passed down to them. And, um, and there was a great, great awareness. Now, to their credit, again, you know, Halifax, again, became an important shipping port in World War II, and I haven't seen any great push to say, let's not go through that again. In other words, people came together for the need of, for what they thought was necessary. How did this change shipping in and out of Halifax? 
Well, it didn't in a way because uh, you still had to ship munitions in and out. They would, you know, they would have tried, and uh, I've seen you know some examples of measures to, to, you know, to make sure that they stood by the routes more, that there was more careful guidance. Of course, by World War II, when the volume was up again, because again, a lot of this was munition ships and naval ships, um, you had better means of navigation as well. And you know, in the twenty-something years that have passed since then, so techniques were better overall. Uh, who came to help Halifax? Other countries, other cities. Well, we were, you know, World War One. We were still, you know, we were Canada, but yeah. we were largely, you know, there, were, there was a lot of British influence in troop command and others. So there was some engagement in there, but there was, you know, in the middle of a war, nobody was dispatching ships from or help from the battlefront overseas to come back here. In other words, you know, we were largely on our own, and I think we can understand that. Uh, the fact that it, you were in the middle of a war at this time, uh, how, did, how did that affect the response? Well, but then again, I guess if you weren't in the middle of a war, you wouldn't have the, the munition situation. But uh, again, we're obviously uh, uh, resources were stretched to the limit here. Yeah, although the funny thing, again, so it doesn't happen if there's not a war, but one thing about wars, and this is true of both of Canada's wars, is it really kind of industrialized the country. It gave us the, uh, caused us to build the infrastructure and create the means to, to move a lot of things very fast, you know, to mass produce a lot of things very quickly because we'd never had that need and suddenly it was there. So we, you know, it was therefore more possible to, you know, to start some of the rebuilding process early. The infrastructure, again, existed by trains and otherwise to move material into the area. But nobody had any experience of this. You know, I mean, this had never happened before. And in, in fact, in North America, it's never happened since. Uh, obviously, different time, uh, different uh, place, certainly not the same technology. But how was this viewed around the world? How was this, uh, how, was, how did the rest of the world respond to this? Well, you know... It's kind or of, again, World War, we got our own problems. Yeah, it's kind of the story of Canada in this, that it wasn't the story that it might have been if something like this had occurred in Newcastle in the UK or somewhere in Europe. It was recognized in strategic terms by you know other parts of the Allies, or, you know, our allies in the war, and of course in Ottawa and across Canada. But uh, it didn't create a great stir elsewhere. Uh, obviously, a harbor full of ships. Was everything within the harbor just gone? There are, again, some miraculous stories of survival, including some of the people who were close to the process. You know, if you, um, if you happened, uh, I th- you know, for reasons I don't quite understand, but I think if you happened to be sort of further out to sea, um, you know, or, well, for one thing, if you've been rowing away from it, this was, you know, this, it, the ship had drifted closer to shore, so there was some protection from there. Also, by the nature of the geography of the harbor, you know, you, there was, it was possible to be at some places where there was a bit of protection away from the main city itself. So there were some. So the total property damage around then, you know, but this is almost irrelevant in today's terms, was about $35 million. But if you mm, put that wow. in, you know, that would be well beyond $350, uh, I just, uh, you know, almost more like $3.5 billion today. How did the government of the day react to this? Well, there were not, you know, there, there weren't a lot of social services then, and most of those were not run by government. Um, you know, people were, it was much more of an era of expecting people to figure this out on their own. So, uh, you know, the mayor was away, the deputy mayor was around and tried to get police and fire to do it, but that wasn't a big, you know, that wasn't a big thing. But, you know, the advantage here was that you did have on the outskirts of town military personnel who were around, who were already stationed there, who were, you know, used to a command structure, could follow orders well, and were called right in, you know, to, you know, to assist on this right away. 
Uh, and also some American and Canadian ships were then diverted to the area to take some of the homeless or the wounded on board, you know, to give them a place where they could sleep undercover. Anthony Wilson-Smith has been with us, president and CEO of Historica Canada. A hundred years ago today, the Halifax explosion occurs when two ships, one loaded with explosives, collide. Uh, the explosion kill, uh, killing nearly 2,000 people. Fascinating uh, discussion, Anthony. Thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.